All right, for the rest of us, let's turn to the book of Mark or open up your Mark journal or pull up the gospel of Mark on your app. Um, and as you turn there, I want to ponder a question with you. That's not a very fun question, but I want to ponder a question with you. Uh, how does it feel to be rejected? I'm not asking, have you been rejected? I'm assuming all of us have had that experience at some point. So, so instead of asking, have you, how does it feel? By a job, by a friend, by a school you wanted to get into, whatever it may be. How, how's it feel? Open question. Willing to answer? How's it feel to be rejected? It triggers my shame. Triggers shame, yeah. Way to take us deep there. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. Absolutely, it does. What else? Lonely? Feel really isolating at times? Anybody else? We all know it. Sad, brokenhearted is a word that's associated with rejection a lot. Similar question, but a different angle. Have, I'll ask this one. Have you ever been rejected for standing up for something that was right? And if so, you know, like that, that's the same pain, but it takes it like to a whole new level. And there's a difference in one sense between what feels like death, which is bad, and what feels like martyrdom, which is worse. And history is full of people who have been rejected for standing up for what was right. History is full of people who've, who've even given their lives for things that they know to be right. Anyone come to mind as someone who's done that? Willing to share out loud? Who's someone who's given their life for something they know to be right? Martin yeah, Martin Luther King, Jr., yeah. Abraham Lincoln. Bonhoeffer. Dietrich. Who else? Jesus did. We'll come to him in a minute. But yeah, there, there's, there's others throughout history, both on our side of the world and on the sides of the world that, that we don't follow as much, that, that have given their lives. Ultimately, Jesus gave his life for the best right, for the best good. And we're going to see in today's verses that John the Baptist and Jesus' disciples gave their lives for the best good as well. In fact, if you look through the, Old, uh, through the New Testament... Over and over again, there's this promise, and it'll be on the screen, but the promise is this. If followers of Jesus in the midst of the world live with different values and beliefs, you will suffer. This is one of the least fun promises of the New Testament, but it is in literally every book of the New Testament. If you follow Jesus in the midst of a world whose beliefs are different, you will suffer. You will be rejected. Now, in some places in the world, and some of us know this all too well, uh, people are literally sacrificing their lives for the name and sake of Jesus. Perhaps that's not us. Perhaps maybe we should see it more. But at some point, and maybe even at some point every day, you may be rejected for the sake of following Jesus. But what we see in Mark 6 is that Jesus and his disciples and John the Baptist were rejected and killed for bringing this countercultural message that opposed the worldly powers of the day. Rejection and death were worth it, though, to Jesus and his disciples and John the Baptist, because God and his mission were worth it to them. And then finally, only through rejection and death can we find resurrection and life. Does that make sense? Do you believe that? Do you believe it to the point of joining them, even if it means rejection? That's the hard question we're going to wrestle with today. So I'm going to read from Mark chapter 6. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 1. You're welcome to read along. It'll be on the screens as well. I'm actually going to read off the screens. Um, Jesus went away from the places he was ministering and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. 
And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who were with him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty acts done by his hands? Is he not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are these not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at Jesus. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about teaching among the villages. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put, uh, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Wherever you, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of this, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work with him. But others said, no, he's Elijah. And others said, no, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And then we go into this weird little backstory. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him to be put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept John safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And her mother said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head, and he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This, even this, is the word of the Lord. Okay, so as we ask every week, what did you notice? What stood out? Um... What did the Spirit bring to mind, your heart, your soul, your strength as you read, uh, hopefully this week, or even as we just said it out loud? What would you notice from John, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 6? I think when I suddenly watched John, um, maybe it was the Holy Spirit calling him out. Yeah. You know, being with him for the entire day, to have someone call me out on my face. Yeah, and I love the subtlety. He, he, he was kind of perplexed. 
but he really enjoyed hearing them. I think there's something to that that we can remember, that even if something doesn't look like it's like, oh, this is working or understanding, there's, there's something under the surface often that's like, huh, there's something different going on here. That's good. Anything else stand out this week as you read? Read ahead? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot that Mark ties in between like faithfulness and again, it's not like faithlessness. It's not like uh, we started watching Christmas movies in our house, Elf, like the, the Christmas songs, there has to be enough of a meter for, for the sleigh to fly. That's not how it works. It's not like there's got to be enough faith for Jesus to do things. And yet it's almost like, okay, God was holding some of those things back going, if there's not even a faith to see or experience, it's, it's God who allows and disallows, Right? But it's an odd phrase, yeah. It's one of the only places in the whole scriptures that we see God or, or Jesus, our Lord, slated to be unable to do something. Anything else? One more? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that all of this message is being rejected. I love that you picked up on the ask me anything and I'll give it to you. And what you ask for is death. Whereas for Jesus, ask me anything and I'll give it to you. And what he gives is life. Yeah, it's good. All right. So there's three scenes in this and we're going to kind of walk through them and see the rejection and see the glory in that rejection. So, so in the first scene, in the first verses, uh, this will be up on the screen. Jesus is the one who's rejected. And man, there's all sorts of things to say about these first verses of, of Mark chapter six. So uh, first, Jesus had sisters and brothers. Um, is this not the brother of James and Judas, uh, aka Jude, who wrote Books of the Bible, James, uh, the, the book of James and, and the book of Jude are written by brothers, biological half-brothers, I guess, of Jesus, and he had sisters. And so that strikes you as odd if you grew up in some religious traditions. There's some, including our Roman Catholic sisters and brothers, that believe that, that Mary stayed a virgin for the rest of her life, and it's really hard to know what they do with this verse, because um, either... Jesus was the first of a lot of miracle babies for, for, for Mary, um, or there's something here that, that is just going, okay, this is, this is not something that, that is true. Far more importantly than that, though, you need to know that Nazareth was a town that itself was rejected among the, the land of Israel. Um, in fact, in John chapter 1, when, when people outside of Nazareth hear that this man, Jesus, came from Nazareth, they say, some of you may know this, they say, can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, that's what people think of Nazareth. And yet within Nazareth, this whole town that knows what rejection feels like, what are the people doing? They're rejecting one of their own. 
Um, in verse 2, it says that they were astonished, but by verse 3, they're offended. You know what reason most theologians, most historians give to the rejection of Jesus by his own people? I think there's a caution here for us. A lot of folks attribute it to their familiarity with him. And, and, and so again, like Jesus is known. Isn't he the carpenter? Isn't he Mary's son? But, but in reality, Jesus is fitting a long biblical pattern. Joseph, all the way back in Genesis, who had a revelation from God through dream, dreams, was rejected by his brothers for bringing truth to bear. The prophets in the Old Testament, Stephen, the first martyr attributed, we'll see that there's another one, but the first attributed martyr in the book of Acts were rejected by religious people who thought they knew better. I was reading one author this week who said that he finds it interesting that God's people are the ones who are offended by the upside-down way of God's working. Can I say that again? Because again, I think there's a caution in here for us. It's, it's God's people throughout the Bible. It's God's people who are the ones offended by the upside-down way of God's working. So there's a question here. Are we, are you open to see God, to hear God, to know God in unexpected ways, in countercultural ways, in quiet ways, in ways that would otherwise be rejected? Or because of the, the world around us and the striving for bigger, better, faster, louder, are we more apt to reject things that are true if the message seems too unworldly? or if the means or the invitation from Jesus seems too upside down. Don't get so familiar, church, that you miss Jesus. But bottom line, Jesus in these first verses, in this first of three scenes, is the one rejected. But just like Mark does with other images, um, Jesus' rejection here foreshadows a, a later and even greater rejection that Jesus will face. If you haven't been walking with us uh, yet through the, through the Gospel of Mark, in Mark 1, we saw uh, one of the very first things that Jesus does when he appears on the scene is gets baptized. And baptism is, at least in, in our tradition, is going down into the water and coming up because it represents dying and then being brought up into new life. Um, in, John, in Mark 4, I keep saying John today, uh, we're going to get to John the Baptist, but in Mark 4, we saw this, this imagery of seeds being scattered, and, and anytime there is a seed in existence, it's because something died. A seed fell to the ground off of a living tree or out of a living fruit, and yet out of seeds comes new life. And so this death and life imagery is laced throughout Mark's gospel. Here in verse 5, Jesus still healed. Verse 6, he still taught, even in the midst of the rejection he was facing in his own hometown. While he was being rejected, Jesus was pursuing God's mission. Is that good news? Does it foreshadow even better news that even though he was rejected, Jesus pursued God's mission? Then later in Mark, he's going to be rejected. But through even death, God gave his greatest blessing, which is full and eternal life for you. And, and here's the point. If you've looked at Jesus' life at all, even, even in, in Gethsemane, even in the moment where he was at his, his wrought fear and sadness and desire to not be killed, for, for Jesus, he still said, if this is the only way, if this is your will, let it be done. For Jesus, the rejection, even the death, y'all, was worth it. Why? Because Jesus' ultimate goal was not to please the people who mocked and despised and rejected him. Jesus' goal wasn't even 
to preserve his own life. Jesus' ultimate goal was to listen and obey God and do God's will. Through rejection and death come resurrection and life. Though Jesus is rejected in his own hometown, some were healed, many were taught. Though he was rejected and killed later, there was even greater and more holistic healing and a greater wisdom seen promised on earth as it is in heaven. It, it was only through Jesus' suffering and death and rejection. Again, only through Jesus' suffering, death, and rejection that Jesus fulfilled God's mission, right? And so hear this, there's good news even in Jesus' rejection. And so before we go to the, the next set of verses as we move to, from Jesus to his disciples and see their rejection, I want to jump ahead a little bit in his life uh, and read a passage that we see in John's gospel, for real John's gospel this time. It's in John 15, uh, where John is, is spending the last evening, those last hours before he's killed with his closest disciples. And here's, here's part of what John says to his disciples. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world but rather because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. What's Jesus saying? If persecution, if suffering, if rejection, if death is true of me, it's going to be true of my followers. And so salt and light, like we talk a lot about being with Jesus and becoming like Jesus and doing what Jesus did. It's rare that a Sunday goes by where we don't mention something along those lines. But you need to know, like, that's not all just like rainbows and unicorns and happy things. Like Jesus came to confront the worldly powers and the empty religion and the idols and wealth of the day. And guess what, y'all? Worldly powers and empty religion and idols and wealth don't like to be confronted. Those things and the people with those things will fight back. Those things and the people with those things are the ones who rejected and mocked and persecuted and ultimately killed our Lord Jesus. For confronting that. Why is it that we think we would have a pass and, and that we, our lives would be any different? I, I want to be perhaps overly bold with you for just a moment and say that even in a culture like ours, where we won't likely be killed for our faith, even still, the only reason we should expect not to be rejected, mocked, persecuted at some point the only reason we should expect to, to not see those things is if we're not living a countercultural life or proclaiming a countercultural message of Jesus as a better king than the culture around us. Does that make sense? If, if, being, if we want to be with Jesus and become like Jesus and do what he did, part of doing what he did was got rejected. That should be our expectation. I guess, as a nuance, I guess the, the one other reason we could expect not to be rejected and mocked and, and persecuted is if a culture believes in, in 
reflects the same message, but that is not true, and it's less and less true. So why would we expect to be any different? What is the life we're leading? What's the message we're pursuing? Is that fair? Any questions? Any pushback on that? Okay, so with that in mind, that what is true for Jesus is going to be true for his followers, then we see this next scene as the, the, the sixth chapter of Mark unfolds, um, and that is that Jesus' disciples are the ones who are rejected. Because after all we just said about the world, the world that rejects and mocks and persecutes and kills Jesus and his followers for, for this countercultural message, what does Jesus do with his followers? We read this a few minutes ago. He sent them, as he sends us, directly into that world, specifically to display and declare that countercultural message. So, yes, it is true that the world is going to hate people, and it is also true that Jesus sends us into that world. His followers were rejected. Which means we have to ask two questions. One, how were they to go, which we see in the text, and then what would compel them to go? So first, what do you remember from when we read uh, in Mark 6 a moment ago? How were they supposed to go? What are some things that they were supposed to do and not do as they went into the different cities Yeah, not supposed to take anything and not jump around. So wherever, whoever offers you lodging, stay there. Okay, good. Anything else? Pairs. They went in pairs, two by two. You both said it at the same time, which is really ironic given that you were both talking about pairs. Okay, anything else? Shake off the dust. Yeah, okay. So that's pretty much what Jesus' uh, instruction consisted of. Um, I want to summarize that they were supposed to go boldly, but humbly and dependently. Bold, humble, dependent. Why? Because that's also the posture of their Lord Jesus. Bold, humble, and dependent. They had a bold message. They had authority over demons. But they went two by two. <laughs> Is that a demon thing happening just now? <laughs> Baby burps are cute. All right. They're the only burps that are cute, though. There we go. All right, so they had a bold message. They had authority over even the spiritual realm. And yet, Jesus sent them out two by two in part to protect them from being alone and also for any one person having too much power. Jesus sent them with no provision so that they had to be ultimately and only completely dependent on God and people. Wear your shoes. Don't even take a coat. The whole two tunics thing is weird. It's just don't, even, don't even stay warm. But he allowed him to wear shoes. I think that part's funny. Put on your sandals, but don't take two jackets. Watch out for nails. Um, they had to stay, and Ashley brought this out. They, they, wherever, wherever offered to let them stay first, that's where they were to go. You know why? Because if the couch bed doesn't feel quite as appealing as someone with like a guest room with an ensuite. Isn't it kind of our own nature to be like, yeah, but thanks so much. I'm going to pop in over here. But in humility, which is not thinking of yourself, they were to stay with whomever offered them lodging first. And then even in the shaking of dust off their feet, if they weren't received, if they were rejected, man, that's a, is, that, is that a hard thing to have to do, to walk out of a relationship? Some of us have had to do this and the people-pleasing and, and this kind of stuff that's involved and the yearning for something better, but, 
But even that was an opportunity to say, okay, God, I'm going to obey and trust you even more than what I want to be true in this relationship. Does that make sense? They were, they were sent out with great authority and boldness to display and declare a great message. And yet their posture was ultimately humble, ultimately powerless, ultimately dependent on God who alone has all the power in the universe. That's how they were sent out. What compelled them to go? Again, this is a, a world that they're going into that's, Jesus is saying, you're going to be rejected. You're going to shake dust off your feet. Later, he's going to tell them, if they killed me, they're going to kill you. What, what compelled them to do such a thing? Let me ask you, what would compel you to do a hard or weird thing? It's really one of two options. You're either forced or ordered to, right? Or... Or that thing is so worth it to you that you have no care for what happens to yourself. That thing is so worth it to you that you have no care for what happens to yourself. The same was true for Martin Luther King, for Abraham Lincoln, for the different people who gave themselves for different causes. In these things, they felt no loss because this other thing was so worth it. Does that make sense? And it's not just religion that, that people go, yeah, I'm willing to die for that. I'm willing to go all into that. Uh, I started reading Lord of the Rings with Charlotte this past uh, month. It's real slow. Um, but in it, like if you've seen the movies or, or read the books, like Gollum gave his life for the thing that he found to be most, what's the word? Precious. Yeah, with the accent. Yeah, Gollum gave his life for the thing that he found to be most precious. He felt no loss, no... It was completely without abandon as he threw himself in to literal flames after this thing. Here's the deal. Everyone will suffer if you find it to be worth it. You'll suffer for something if you think it's worth it. And yet, similar to this scene with Jesus, the scene with his disciples ends with some being healed, spiritually, physically healed, demons cast out, this kind of stuff. Many were taught. They were called to repentance. And... Mark doesn't record this, but some likely rejected and mocked and persecuted his followers. How do we know this? Because Jesus' own equipping and instruction includes a bit on what to do with folks who wouldn't listen and receive. Here's, here's what we have to get. I'm spending more time on, on Jesus' followers because, hey, it turns out that's us as well. The posture and role of Jesus' followers was bold but humble and dependent. They didn't force people into God's kingdom. They didn't coerce people to follow Jesus. They didn't, they, didn't use their, they didn't abuse their authority and power. Rather, the role and posture of Jesus' followers was, was obedience to God and following the example of their Lord Jesus and inviting people, inviting people into something better. And they were willing to disciple and walk with those who said yes, and they were willing to move on from those who said no sometimes after a long time. Why were they willing to do that? It's because it's it was Jesus' own posture. Again, worldly power. Sniff it out. It's all over the place. Worldly power coerces, manipulates, forces people often into something that's worse for them. Jesus was the best news for people, and so, yeah, be bold. Let's be bold but let's be humble and invitational and willing, willing 
to let people reject us and walk away at times. Because, and I hope there's some weird comfort in this, if that's true for Jesus, our master, that's true for us as his followers. Is that your posture? Is that your role toward the world? 11 out of 12 of Jesus' disciples were rejected, mocked, persecuted for the name of Jesus. All 11 of those 12 were killed just like Jesus was. But for them, it was no loss. For them, it was worth it. Because they had faith in God and because they believed the message that Jesus sent them to share with the world. Like they really believed that Jesus mattered to all of life. They really believed that Jesus was a better king. They really believed that his kingdom was the best kingdom, both now and for all of eternity. And it's a question for me, it's a question for all of us, do we really believe that? And do we believe those things to the point where we would be rejected for displaying and declaring those things to be true? Now, I see this final, final passage from what we read earlier. You know who was the first martyr for Jesus? A lot of folks say it was Stephen in the book of Acts. He was the first martyr after, that was recorded in history at least, after Jesus' death. But, but John the Baptist here is the first to die for the message of Jesus as a better king. And so there's a lot that could be said about this really weird and incestuous and convoluted story here. But even if there weren't kids in the room, there are. I'm just going to summarize it anyway. So Herod, who for the record was literally the worldly king of the Jews at the time, right? That was his title. He was, he was playing fast and loose with John's life. He was being pretty cavalier because of John's message. John's message essentially was repent and stop this incestuous relationship. Be a better king. Be a better example for the kingdom to follow. Herod did not obey. Herod did not obey, even though he found John's teachings perplexing. He still imprisoned John. And then, in even like a stranger incestuous relationship, he promised his niece, who was also his stepdaughter, <laughs> yep, um, promised that person John's head in exchange for, quote, a dance that pleased his party guests. Like, that's just a weird, gross sentence. And bottom line, Herod killed John the Baptist. But what was John's role throughout his short life? What was John's mission? Proclaim the coming king. Mark spends a little bit, a little bit more time in, in John's role in Mark chapter 1 than some of the other gospel writers do. So we see John proclaiming the coming kingdom, proclaiming Jesus as king. John's message, which was repent and, and give up your old ways because there's a better way. That, that message wasn't just a message for Herod. That was a message for all of Israel, for all people. And so just like Jesus and his followers... We saw in John's life in Mark chapter 1 that many believed John and repented and became baptized, but also as with Jesus and his followers, many, including Herod, the, the power of the day, rejected and mocked and persecuted John too. Why did many, including Herod, reject and mock and persecute John? Exactly for displaying and declaring God's countercultural message and for seeking a better kingdom in the midst of power and religion and idolatry and wealth. Herod, who was the centerpiece of power and religion and idolatry and wealth, pushed back on John's challenge and ultimately killed John for his role in God's mission. 
but like Jesus and like Jesus' followers. For John, he counted it as no loss. It was worth it. Because John's goal was not his own reputation. John's goal was not to fit in, keep his head down, just don't offend the king. John's goal, he stated this, we see this in the Gospel of John, he must increase, talking about Jesus, and I must decrease. That was John's mantra. John's goal was to usher people into a better kingdom. John's goal was to bring people out of darkness into light. His, his goal was to see people go from death into true and eternal life. Why? Again, because that was Jesus' goal too. And so his death was, no, even his death, can you picture this? Even his death was no loss to John. For John, like Jesus, like Jesus' followers, rejection and mockery and persecution and even his death was worth it. Because that's how important Jesus is. That's how important the kingdom of God is. That's how important the message of the gospel is. Church, Jesus really does change everything, even our own view of what matters most, even our own view of death. Has he seeped into that crevice of our lives yet? Jesus lived and suffered and died to see the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus' followers lived and suffered and died to see the kingdom of God on earth. John the Baptist lived and suffered and died to see the kingdom of God on earth. And so we're going to end with this question is, what about you? Why are we alive? What is your purpose? What is your goal? And perhaps a bigger question or a question to help us get there is to say, what is it that you would be willing to suffer and die for? Is it belongings and finances? Is it a legacy? Is it a family? Is it a reputation? Is it health? Is it a thousand dozen other things? What is so important to you that you'd be willing to face rejection and suffering and die for the sake of that person or thing? For Jesus, for his followers, for John the Baptist, there was one answer. The kingdom of God was worth losing all other things including possessions and wealth and legacy and family and reputation and health. They were willing to give it all for the sake of God's kingdom. They were willing to be rejected and mocked and persecuted and killed for the sake of God's kingdom. What is it, and I've been wrestling with it this week, what is it that would hold me back from joining them? What is it that holds you back from joining them? What worldly power, empty religion, idol, or wealth do we need to die to so that Jesus and his kingdom message alone can shine brightly forward. And this is what we're going to reflect on as we turn to communion. Because on the same night that Jesus told his followers that they'd be rejected for following him, Jesus literally gave up his life to bring the kingdom of God to bear on earth and in our lives as it is in heaven. But before he did, he took the bread. And so you have bread on your table And he said, this is my body, broken, persecuted, mocked for you. And he said, this is my blood. There's juice and wine. You can dip the bread in it and hold it with me for a moment. This is my blood that is spilled, poured out, rejected, killed for you and for many. Why? Jesus says, for the forgiveness of sins and that you may have true and full life. 
And this is our good news, church. While we, while we may be half-hearted in our commitment to Jesus, Jesus is wholehearted in his commitment to us. And so take and eat. And remember, this is the good news of communion, and this is the good news of Jesus' rejection, that only through his death do we have true life. Amen? Father, this chapter touched a nerve for me. I'm sure it touches a nerve for a lot of us as we really actually consider the cost of what it means to follow you, what it means to be wholehearted toward you, what it means to be willing to suffer and die for something. And so, God, for all of us, I pray that you would meet us and help us to be discerning and help us to go, yeah, what is it? What is it that's keeping me from this? And God, would you show us what you want us to do? We want to be willing. We want to be with you. We want to become like you. We want to do what you did. But we can't do that without your help. So even as we stand and as we sing, God, would, would whatever questions you want us to wrestle with not disappear? Would they be on our minds, on our hearts through this week? And then would you, Spirit, help us answer those? Help us be more like Jesus, even in his willingness to be rejected. In your son's name. Amen.